Hello, and welcome to the official release of the one and only Ben Shapiro's new book. Now, the book is not the one and only. Ben has written many books, many bestsellers, all of them impressively with words. The latest book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps, what began as a prophecy has now become a news report. But for the moment, while we still have some semblance of a country left, we are pleased to welcome you to this live signing premiere of How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Typically, you may recall, on our shows, you have got to be a Daily Wire member to ask the questions. But today, oh, today, it is a special exception. Anyone who orders a signed copy of Ben's new book can submit a question to be answered right here, live, while your book is being signed by this guy, the one and only. If you want your question answered while Ben signs your book, head on over to dailywire.com Ben right now. And while we wait for the questions to come in, Ben, how do you destroy America in three <laughs> steps? Well, first of all, I have to say that this distance is like the best distance Wait, we've ever had. Wait, I feel too far from you. I, I know, but it's, that... it's exactly the right okay, amount of distance. Right, it's like, right, it's absolutely right. perfect. So the basic thesis of the book, if you haven't heard me talk about it on the show for the last couple months, uh, is, is essentially that what ties America together is our philosophy, our culture, and our history. And that without those three elements, any culture, any nation is going to fall apart. The philosophy of the United States is embedded in the Declaration of Independence, certain fundamental principles that there are natural rights, they come from God or from nature, and that they pre-exist government, that those rights are endowed, inalienable in all of us, and that government is instituted in order to protect those rights, and that a limited government is created in order not to infringe upon those rights. So the Declaration is the ideological framework, for, and then the Constitution is what really formalizes that into a workable system. That's the philosophy. And that philosophy has been consistent throughout the, US, the history of the United States. We'll get to the history in just one second. Second, you need a common culture. And what that means is you have to have uh, a certain framework beyond mere government that we share. And that framework used to be things like social institutions that inculcated virtue, right? Churches and schools and communities. You needed those things. You also needed a general spirit of tolerance for other people's rights, meaning that rights exist. But one of the big problems with rights is that you then have to tolerate the guy next to you completely using the right in a way you don't like. Right. You like free speech, but you don't like what that guy's saying. Well, there has to be a culture of tolerance for that guy using his rights in a way that Could you I don't think... Could our common culture be cancel culture? That seems like the only thing we should. Well, well I, I think that that's exactly right, and that's that's kind of where we're going. Yeah. Uh, is is tearing down all of this in the name of a new faux unity? Yeah. Um, but the you have to have that. You have to have a culture of entrepreneurship and yeah. adventure. You have to cultivate a spirit that says that the only thing you're promised in the United States is not a bunch of entitlements from the government. It is instead the adventure that comes along with freedom and the responsibility that comes along with freedom. And finally, you have to have a culture that says that it is worth standing up for those rights. It's not merely tolerating other people's rights. It's standing up militantly when rights are violated. Yeah. And that has been a common thread throughout American history, which brings us to the final element. You have to share a vision of American history. Well, that vision used to be pretty obvious. America was founded in 1776. It was founded on these fundamental philosophical principles. The history of the United States is about the attempt to fulfill those principles gradually, step by step, stumbling, falling, sinning dramatically, doing horrible things along the way. But eventually, the story of America is about the spread of prosperity and freedom to untold numbers of human beings at home and abroad. It's about the fulfillment of founding principle, and it's a glorious story. It is not, in fact, a downcast story about the vicious evil of the United States. Disintegrationists have attacked all three of these elements. They seek to level the United States by destroying all the ties that bind us. American philosophy has to be destroyed. American culture has to be destroyed. American history has to be rewritten yeah. as the story of exploitation of one group by another group that has never abated. There's never been any attempt to abate it. That 1619 is the same as 2020. Every article in the New York Times is this, right? right. Here's a bad thing that happened in 1720 with slavery. Yeah. And now here's a story about Michael Brown, and they're yeah. exactly the same. It's like, well, no, you missed a few things. But that culture, the, the disintegrationist view of, of America is taking real hold. I mean, there's this poll from the Wall Street Journal today that said that 59% of Americans, 58% of Americans said that the United States was a racist country. Yeah. Uh, they, a huge percentage of Americans now say, a majority of Americans now say kneeling for the American flag is appropriate. Right? The disintegrationists are winning. Yeah. They're winning because we ceded the field of battle. We, we voted for the quote-unquote right people, but we forgot that we actually have to inculcate certain values in our kids. Right. Well, a good reason to read the book, to get, which I have done, by the way. I really enjoyed reading it. Let's get some questions from people so they can get their signed books and read it as well. First question comes in from Aaron from Crestview, Florida. Hello, Ben. You're not talking to Ben. You're talking to me. And then I'm asking, well, never mind. As a 29-year-old, I'm wanting some pointers to be able to be more involved in government, mainly at the local level, city, county, or state. So, 
the best way to get involved in, in government is to recognize that when you're talking about local government, you have to find an issue that generates a broad level of support, and then you have to cast your opponents as not being in that circle. Right? This is something that Jonathan Haidt talks about. The, the big mistake that people talk uh, that people make in politics is not trying to draw other people into the, the kind of sumo wrestling circle before you throw them out. You actually have to draw as many people into you in a unifying stand as you can, and then you throw out your opponent. This is, Democrats are very good at this, right? Democrats will say, we all believe in things like police brutality suck. Now defund the police. And you're like, I don't want to defund the police. Like, it's too late. It's too late. Yep. You're outside the circle. You don't have to play that game. But there are a lot of issues that are very unifying on a local level that people have neglected. And when it comes to local government, there's a lot of knocking on doors. There's a like, kind of broad philosophy. It doesn't really take too much of a hold at local levels. It, 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 it's really broad philosophies made manifest in Fill very specific. Hole, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. So making sure that you can actually get that stuff done is the key to getting involved on a local level. You know, I'm actually not the best person to ask this because I've never been involved on a local level. But I have been told by my friends who are involved on a local level that really being in touch with the community and, and really knocking on doors is, is, is the key. And I think Garcetti is so unpopular here in L.A. I mean, I think you could be mayor of a good LA. shot. Yeah. No, it's exactly. You could be mayor of Bill de Blasio. You could be mayor of Bill de Blasio so long as you pledge not to mur- like actively murder groundhogs and allow the complete destruction of your city. We've got like lowering standards these days in local politics. From Zach in White Oak, Pennsylvania. What is your favorite way to decompress after work? I just scream. I just go home and I just scream. I'll be honest with you, for like four hours, it's just one long, continuous scream of rage and pain. Now, the, the actual answer is that uh, I have three kids, and so I play with my kids and I let them beat the living hell out of me. Uh, and then I go running from my children. Like, I, I will, I, I've taken up running. During the pandemic, it turns out you can't go to the gym. So, and if you go outside and you're not exercising, they'll arrest you. So that means that I basically have only a few choices. Right now, that choice has led me to go on these long runs where I listen to music or books on tape or other people's podcasts. It means that I've lost some weight. I, thank you for noticing. Yeah. But it, it also <laughs> means that, uh, that, that that is the best way to decompress. Also, just reading a lot. So Sabbath is the great decompression time. And I'll knock out, in a, in a typical Sabbath, I'll knock out like three books maybe. Wow. I'll read maybe three books over the course of a Sabbath. So That's pretty good. Like, this Judaism has something going for it. This is really... Jesus was into it, man. Yeah, every this, day. This every really... day. Uh, Alex from Santa Clarita, California wants to know, in contrast to the title of this book, how can we save America in three easy steps? I'm so glad you asked. The answer is embedded in this very book. Okay, because the way the book is structured is essentially, here is the philosophy that holds America together, here's the culture, here's the history, and then here's how the left is trying to destroy all of these things. Although I shouldn't really say the left, I should say the radical left, because I think there are some liberals who actually still believe in some of these general principles. You saw that in maybe the Harper's Weekly letter. The the answer in the end is going to be education, and it's going to be talking to your neighbors, and it's going to be recognizing commonality before difference. And that's that's a big thing. I think that we spend so much time clarifying difference in American politics that recognizing that at root, there are a lot of commonly held values, that's worthwhile because when we don't speak them, they don't become commonly held. They're very easily dissolved. You see this with free speech. We sort of took for granted that we're all kind of like, yeah, you can have your opinion, I can have my opinion, we'll move along. But without articulating that, that completely fell away. And then it became, well, you're not allowed to have your opinion so long as your opinion is a bad, unapproved opinion. And then points of agreement fall away. So establish where you agree with people before you try to establish where you disagree. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you know, we, we do share things, at least for now. And uh, you know, hopefully we'll still share them before the whole country burns down. From Aldo in Buena, New Jersey, where do you see America in the next five to 10 years? Where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? I believe Aldo is interviewing you for a job. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what, exactly right. Where do you see yourself? Well, where I see myself is a beautiful resort <laughs> off the coast of Italy, mm-hmm. yep. yeah, just enjoying my time, uh, thinking about how America is just fantastic because the president of the United States is now Thomas Sowell, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and just everything is going great. I mean, realistically speaking, five to 10 years from now, what my hope is that more and more people obviously engage with the show, read the books, uh, and, and inculcate the values that I'm pushing. I mean, that's why I do what I do. I mean, the money's great, but, but the, the real reason I do this, I did it when the money wasn't great for years and years and years. The real reason I do this is because I actually care about the stuff that I talk about. And because I care about that stuff, you know, I, I want to ensure that more and more people hear that. So we have a lot of things that we're going to bring to Daily Wire. There's a lot of stuff that we're going to build out here. I don't want to talk about it yet because it's a little bit early. And I also have a real bad habit of like pre-selling stuff. Like, for example, the Shapiro store, which I did two years in advance of the actual release of the Shapiro store. So I'm not going to talk about what we're going to do specifically over the next five to 10 years. I can say that we are in active talks about that right now. It's really exciting stuff. Uh, and as far as where the country is in five to 10 years, you're screwed. I mean, like, I don't know what yeah. to tell you. It's, it, I, realistically, 
I think what's going to happen is if things do not change radically between now and November, Trump is going to lose and it's going to suck. It's going to be so bad because I think that if Trump loses, there's a high likelihood that he takes the Senate with him. I think that if Joe Biden and the Democratic Senate and a Democratic House are in charge, it's going to get really ugly. The one thing I will say that gives me some level of optimism is that Democrats always overstep. This is a habit. People tend to interpret a mandate against the other side as a mandate for the things they want to do. George W. Bush did this after 2004 when he started pushing Social Security privatization and immigration reform. And everybody's like, nope, you don't get to do any of that. And then gave the Democrats power in 2006. And then after Barack Obama was elected, he interpreted that as people want nationalized health care. And two years later, Congress was Republican again. I think it's very likely the same thing could happen with Joe Biden. He goes for broke. Americans are like, this is too much. We're not doing this. And then power starts to swift, swiftly shift back in the direction of Republicans, I think. Yeah, I, th- I guess the, the pessimistic view is that things can't get any worse. And then the optimistic view is, of course they can. Of yeah. course they can get worse. No, that, that, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, they, they always say that there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. But sometimes the darkest time is just before it gets completely black. That's beautiful. From Adrian from Arlington, Massachusetts. Ben, what three books other than your own would you recommend as fundamental readings for anyone interested in understanding conservative and classical liberal philosophy that are relatively easy to digest for the average person? You know, Ben, do any books come to mind, easy to digest, uh, really musing on these philosophical thoughts? So there's a book. Let me tell you about this book. This book is so replete with knowledge and thoroughness that it really, it can't be overstated. It's called Reasons to Vote Democrat, A Roll of Toilet Paper. And it is, it is really excellent. You know, I think that you'll get a lot from it. And also it serves other purposes. So that's, that's, great. that's, that's really exciting. I'll stuff. take that endorsement. That, uh, other things that you should probably read. So I always recommend Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. It is sort of the classical liberal view of economics. It's about 150 pages long. It's very easy to digest. It's easy to read. Uh, the Federalist Papers is not quite as easy to digest, but it is definitely kind of vital reading. Frankly, if you read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, and you can combine those as sort of one document, then that would be uh, definitely a solid one. I would also recommend that you read uh, A Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell, uh, which is really good. His, his kind of philosophical writing I like even better than his economics writing. So he has, a, he has a bunch of philosophical writing. He has one called The Quest for Cosmic Justice that's also excellent, uh, and that's definitely worthy of the read as well. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a really terrific one. And by the way, if they read the Federalist Papers, they can listen to you explain the Federalist Papers on the PragerU Book Show on your own podcast from years ago. That is a true story. Uh, a lot of great places. If you are just joining us, we are taking your questions. You probably figured that part out. But you can only get your question answered if you go and order a signed copy of Ben's brand new book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Head on over to dailywire.com Ben. You can order your copy there. Next question is from Alejandro in Las Vegas, Nevada. Ben, what is your go-to meal when going out? Oh, um, hmm. Well, the, the easiest one that you know will never fail is a burger. Right? It's really difficult to screw up a burger in a serious way. So burgers, for me, if, if, I'm, if I'm going, I will tell you the secret to going to a nice restaurant. This is, I don't know if it holds true for non-kosher restaurants. So I can only speak for the kosher restaurants. The secret is order 1,000 appetizers and no main. Okay, this is the actual secret. Not because you're trying to save on money, but because you get to taste all of the good tastes. The main is always too large and is usually not quite as good as the appetizers. Have you found this to be true? I've never even considered this strategy, but it, it is in fact the case that when I go out and order a lot of appetizers, that is better than the entree. Correct. Always. That, always. Huh. Always. Right? You can get the chicken and waffles, you get the poppers, you get like all the, you get the, you get the sliders. Like all of those things wow. are better than like the giant steak, unless the steak is magnificent yeah. or something. The appetizers. That is the key. I thought I was only going to learn things about no, American No, you just learn, you just I, learn something incredible. My wife and I wow. do this all the time. Wow. And people don't feel bad because if you order... 35 appetizers, it's the same as ordering a main, so you're not jipping the waiter or something. Right. So that's, so that's, that's always been, uh, that's been our strategy. And See, give a big tip. Order the appetizers. That, that's the kind of advice you only get when you get the signed <laughs> book and you come and ask these questions. This is from Aiden from Alexandria, Virginia. Hey, Ben, you speak a lot about the importance of the culture war. What can we as conservatives do to shift the culture while we are outnumbered in the media and after November possibly in Congress? and possibly even the White House. So we got to start using our market power. It's something that I I don't want to do when it comes to corporations like shoe companies or something. Like I I find that what we have here is a prisoner's dilemma, and the prisoner's dilemma frustrates me to no end. In fact, it frustrates me so much that we actually had an organization, Michael remembers this organization, called Truth Revolt. Truth Revolt 
was indeed a uh, was indeed an organization that was designed to be sort of the anti-media matters and to set up a mutually assured destruction whereby everybody would leave each other alone and we could all go back to some semblance of normal. That of course did not happen. But um, if you are talking about what you can do in the culture right now, you got to turn off the TV in some cases. I mean, you got to you got to make Netflix feel it. You got to you got to make it so that and and I it's honestly not that hard. Like I, I found that I used to watch ESPN all the time. Then it became MSNBC with footballs. And I just stopped watching ESPN just almost naturally. And that hurts their bottom line. I stopped subscribing to Sports Illustrated for the same reason. I still love my sports. I just get it from OutKick instead of getting it from these other places. You know, finding alternative methods of getting your information so as not to subsidize companies that you don't like, that's the best way to do it. Now, I'm not going to recommend that you boycott the advertisers on these things because I think that's idiocy. I think that only the left does that. I think they're garbage. Yeah. And I, you know... Now, more than ever, there are these alternative media sources. So you, you actually are not beholden to like Sports Illustrated or something like that. So you actually can flex your market power a little bit. You just have to go and like click the button on the website. But it's a very, very easy way to do it. From Aaron from Appleton, Wisconsin. Do you believe having a third party in this country would force politicians to have actual conversations? So I think it would help. I mean, I'm, I'm actually in favor of ranked choice voting. I think ranked choice voting is a good idea. So ranked choice voting, for folks who don't understand it, is instead of you just vote for one party or the other party, you actually rank how you would vote. So let's say that there's Republican Party, Libertarian Party, Democratic Party. And let's say you like the Libertarian Party, but you don't want to waste your vote on the Libertarian Party because Libertarian ain't going to win. So what you do instead is you vote Libertarian first and then Republican, and then you leave the rest of your ballot blank because no one would ever vote Democrat. There are literally no reasons to vote Democrat. So as explicated in, in a fabulous book... <laughs> Also a roll of toilet paper called Reasons to Vote Democrat by Michael Moles. So the, yes, I think that having a, a viable third party would be a good thing in the country. It would give people more choices. Because right now, basically, all the Democratic Party has to do is be just to the left of the Republican Party and pick up all those votes. All the Republican Party has to do is just be just to the right of the Democratic Party and pick up all those votes. Alternatively, what you end up seeing is both parties swinging wildly to their extremes because they don't actually have to gamble for the middle because the other party's nowhere near the middle. So you end up with either both parties out here or both parties right in here, when actually what you want is kind of both parties over here. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, rather than having the kind of craziness of Europe where, you know, there are all these different parties. A thousand parties. parties right. Yeah. That, that is one way to kind of consolidate that area where we, all, where we all might agree. From Aaron. Another Aaron. They're all named Aaron. Aaron from Midwest City, Oklahoma. Favorite beer. Okay. So I am not a big beer connoisseur, as you may imagine. Um, I, I will say... Sam Adams, but only because I have a history with Sam Adams. So here's an excellent Samuel Adams beer story. So 11-year-old Ben Shapiro. And we're pl I'm playing in Little League. And my dad is the coach of the Little League baseball team. And on the team is my cousin Joel, and my cousin John is an assistant coach on the team. And we have a big playoff game. And there's, we're playing a team, and this team has won the championship like every single year. And my dad says to us as we're driving in our no-air-conditioned 1991 Toyota Corolla, we're driving there. Fantastic car. Yeah. And we're, we're in 100 degree weather. My father says to me, if we win today, I'm buying you guys beer. And we're like, seriously? And he's like, yeah. So we go. It's a long game. We win. We're all dehydrated. He stops off at a grocery store and he, he goes into the grocery store with us and he says, what kind of beer do you want? And we're like, really? He's like, yeah. And my cousin is like, well, I like American history. So how about Sam Adams? We go back in the car. We end up driving up into the Hollywood Hills. My dad pops open some beers. And one of my cousins takes like one sip, doesn't like it. I take maybe four sips and I, I'm not super fond of it. Yeah. And my cousin Joel downs the entire bottle of beer. He's like 11, <laughs> maybe 12. And he downs the entire bottle of beer. We get back on the freeway and my cousin is now drunk as a skunk. He's 12 <laughs> years old and drunk as a skunk. And he's got the bottle of beer out the window of the car. And my dad is screaming at him, get the beer back in the car or I'm going to be arrested for giving beer to a minor. <laughs> and... Um, and yeah, we didn't get caught by the cops. And uh, to this day, we have been uh, on America's 10 Most Wanted. I'm picturing brand new Thug Life memes of like the, the blunt comes down the Sam Adams into the car. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great American story. From Alex from San Diego, California. Any advice for a Jewish conservative that is about to go to D.C. to study political science? Be very, very careful, sir. I, I mean, I don't know what university you are going to. Here's my advice. My advice is always think of the usefulness of a conversation. So I think people mistake true for useful. These are not the same thing. You having a conversation with your professor publicly where you're trying to convince some of the other students might not be a bad idea. You writing on your final everything that you believe about the Constitution, it might not be a very good idea. You alienating a professor where you don't have a blind final might not be a very good idea. Do not give people who are going to discriminate against you because of your politics the means with which to do so. So be very careful in deciding when and where you are going to drop your truth bombs. 
I know I'm, I'm in argument for a long time with Dennis Prager about this. Dennis Prager's like, just drop the truth bombs everywhere. Just do it, man. Like, Dennis, you haven't been in college in 60 years. Man. Yeah, it's been a long time since Dennis has been in college. So you don't understand. Like, you do that, you're giving them the means to destroy your career. There's no reason to do that. So that would be my main advice is if you have to keep your head down for a little while so that you can get the degree, keep your head down for a little while to get the degree. The purpose of being in college is the credentialing. It is not to convince your professor or the fellow students, at least at this moment. And these days we find out it's not even an education because uh, you're still going to pay 50 grand to Harvard for uh, a Zoom class. Oh, no, I use the, I use the term credentialing very, very specifically. <laughs> yeah. It's just about a credential. It's, right, a, it's, a, right. it's a Cracker Jack, you know, yep. cracker jack box tops. By the way, shout out to Yaf and all they do to help encourage free thought and discussion on college campuses. I'm actually pretty sad I missed out on visiting y'all this past spring. I'm super hopeful we'll meet again in some capacity this fall. And as always, just wanted to mention, I'm always really grateful to Fred Allen for his support in getting these really important ideas out to college students. From Alex, from Iota, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Iota, Minnesota. If three steps didn't do it, what would be your fourth step to destroy America? The fourth step to destroy America is to force everyone to go vegan because the <laughs> amount of hanger in the universe would just increase so rapidly that we could not stand it. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. The fourth step to destroy America is interminable lockdowns that never end without any standards. Yeah. That's, that's seriously like that. locking the economy down until everyone has no job and is dependent on the government and simultaneously locking us in our homes. So when we do come out of our homes, we're super pissed and we go out in the streets and protest and loot things. That seems like a pretty good way to get people to, to lose their minds. And the government has successfully done that. That's not to say that all lockdowns are inevitably wrong or bad or stupid. It is to say that some of these lockdowns are bad and stupid and not based in, in political concerns as much as they are based in, in the actual political interests of the, the players who are, who are doing this sort of yeah. stuff. And could you imagine if everyone became a vegan and all the gyms were closed? Like we would just, everyone would atrophy and no one would be able to defend the country and we'd get invaded. Yeah, it would look like one of those far side cartoons where it's just amoebas on, <laughs> yeah, the, on the ground, just puddling ourselves around. Yeah, it's a very sort of dystopic view. From Adam, from Canandangua. There's oh. no way I'm pronouncing that correct. Canon. That's just Canada, isn't it? From Canada, New York. Aiden from Canada, New York. What odds would you give Donald Trump of winning this election? Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, if the election were held today, I would give... See, here's the problem. Last time I gave odds, I ended up with this gentleman yeah. a lot of money. Not as much money yeah. as I owed others. Yeah. But I ended up nearly bankrupting myself. Yeah. And then I was a jerk about giving him a check, which I eventually <laughs> did give him. But what are his odds? So today, if the election were held today... He is like a an 80-20 shot to, to lose the election. Wow. Uh, it's, it's, it's a real, the numbers are really, really bad. Now, in Trump time, there's there's like three months left, three and a half months left. In Trump time, that's at least 47 years. Yeah. So we are we are yeah. at least 100 news cycles away from the election. Does he have the time to turn it down, uh, turn it around? He could. I'm going to say that he is the, that, that Biden at this point is probably about a 60-40 favorite to win. Um, my, my tendency is to exaggerate that a little bit and say he's even a 65-35 favorite to win because I don't think that Trump is capable of changing himself on a dime the way he sort of needs to. He needs to be laser focused. The problem is in unserious times when bad things are not happening that affect the entirety of the American public, then you can be as silly as you want to be on Twitter. No one really cares. Everybody's happy. When, when the economy's booming, you can like, you know, tweet as much as you want about bubble walls and no one cares. When the entire narrative is America is in a state of collapse. We have the worst unemployment since the Great Depression. We don't know when we're coming back. And by the way, race riots. And then the president is like, you know what I think? I think that Bubba Wallace is a very bad man. Fake news. And you're like, send. And you're like, oh, God, oh, just, just don't, just stop. So could he turn it around? I don't want to be a downer here. Could he turn it around? Yes. Is it extraordinarily likely he turns it around? Not extraordinarily likely. If I were giving money right now, where would I put it? I'd put it in the Senate races. Because right now, the Senate races are very close. They're very competitive, a lot more competitive than the presidential race. And frankly, I trust a lot of these senators to retain their seat more than I trust President Trump to retain the presidency. Again, I, I'm, I, this coming as someone who plans on voting for Trump. I plan on voting for him. I want him to win. But in order for him to win, he needs to change and he needs to stick and move. He, he reminds me of a baseball player who has a great fastball for six months of the season. He's blowing people away with the 100 mile an hour fastball. Then batters start to catch up. So you better have a change up. So where's the change up? It needs to come. Yeah. And you think about the Senate races, at least that. Those are kind of straightforward. Presidential race, we don't know if there are going to be debates. We don't know. If yeah, I mean, listen, there are things that could turn it around. Like if, if Joe Biden were to pick Kamala Harris, that would help Trump immensely because then Trump can campaign against Kamala. The, the, the biggest problem that Trump has right now is it is nearly impossible to beat a dead horse. Joe Biden is a dead horse. You cannot <laughs> beat a dead horse. I mean, like he's, he's trying to say that Joe Biden is super threatening and Joe Biden is just sitting there like, yeah, he's comatose. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's, he's not an alive human. And so Trump is pointing, he's like, isn't that corpse threatening? And you're like, no. 
And he's like, well, it's going to come back to life in November. And he's actually right, right? If, if Biden's elected, yeah. he's the president then. So he's actually right. But the problem is a corpse kind of looks like a corpse. And, and it's not all that threatening until he comes back to life and haunts you and eats your brains. <laughs> That's it. We got to get a Kamala chapter in here, maybe for the yeah. From uh, also Adrian. There is no way that these people all have the same names. Adrian from Carlsbad, California. What scares you most about a Joe Biden presidency? Oh, man. There are a thousand things that scare me about a Joe Biden presidency. So on the foreign policy front, I think he's going to slash the military. I think he's going to start making concessions to Iran. I think he's going to go soft on China, all of which are disastrous for the United States. On a domestic front, I'm deeply worried about the threat to religious liberty. I think he presents. I think he has no interest in using the First Amendment to protect religious liberty in the face of faux anti-discrimination law. And I say faux because you shouldn't have to have anti-discrimination laws when it comes to either religious freedom or when it comes to human action. Anti-discrimination laws were meant to protect against discrimination based on immutable characteristics, not on things like gender identity, which are not apparent to anyone unless you actually manifest that in a form of behavior. The the uh, the Biden administration would not be friendly to religious liberty. It would not be friendly to, to, to homeschooling or charter schooling, which I think is the next on the, on the list of, of things that the Democrats would love to go after. He'd be terrible on guns, obviously. Um, I'm, I think he would sink the economy because I think that Absent what's going on right now, we'd have a booming economy. I think he has every intention of radically increasing taxes. Uh, I think he wants to set up a public option that would eventually lead to the dissolution of the private health care system that has brought about some of the greatest R&D changes in the history of the world. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons to be scared of a Biden presidency, which is, again, why I'm planning on voting for Trump. Yeah. Yeah, it's a litany of all sorts of terrors. And, and there are many others, too. Yeah, well, he'll give up to the woke. I mean, the, the woke yeah. wing, everybody's sort of thinking, okay, well, Joe Biden isn't woke, right? I mean, he'll be a barrier against that. Just because he is not woke himself does not mean that he has any sort of, of backbone to stand up to the wokesters at all. Yeah, especially, you know, if you think he's kind of being walked around on strings, then he certainly doesn't have the backbone. I mean, someone, someone else is uh, pushing him along. From Aileen from West Sayville, New York, regardless of the outcome of the 2020 election, where do you think the Republican Party will be and what do you think it will look like post-Trump? So I think that, you know, the battles that were taking place before Trump will continue after Trump. I think that there is a really rich and interesting debate right now between the sort of nationalist conservative wing and the more libertarianish wing of the, of the Republican Party. The libertarianish wing is not sort of the Rand Paul wing as much as it is sort of the classical liberal wing. There's this group of people, I mean, I do talk about it in this book a little bit, the sort of nationalist wing of the conservative movement that is much warmer toward using the power of government in order to shore up what they think of as fundamental institutions, increasing government power in order to benefit certain industries at the expense of other industries. I'm deeply uncomfortable with that. I think it's wrongheaded, but I think it's a conversation that is going to be had, and I think it's a really interesting conversation. There's always been this rich debate inside the Republican Party about, are you more hawkish on foreign policy? Are you more isolationist on foreign policy? That will continue apace. Uh, I do think that the, the chief methodology of unity is going to be around resistance if Trump were to lose. This is, this is really where yeah. the question lies. It is much easier to unite around an opponent than it is to unite around a policy, which is what Democrats find out every time they gain office. Uh, the Republicans are about to find out the same thing. It's, it's very difficult for them to do anything except pass a tax cut and get some judges in place as the majority. But when you're in the minority and all you're doing is yelling about Joe Biden all day, then you can find an awful lot of places where you oppose Joe Biden and you're on the same page, whether you're a libertarian or a nationalist conservative. Yeah, that's right. That is, by the way, a great section of the book. I really enjoyed that section. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. Again, I think it's a really fascinating Yep. debate. And there's a really good, interesting conversation. If you want a taste of it, go listen to my conversation with Tucker Carlson from a few months back. Yep. That's right. From Adam from Fort Smith, Arkansas. Do you think the country will separate eventually? Not through war, but peacefully because the extreme difference in opinions gets so great. Uh, I think that if things keep going where they're going, then that is a high likelihood. Now, how that actually ends up in practicality is anybody's guess. Because it, it sort of depends on who initiates and who allows the separation to, to take place. Because one of the big problems that we've seen is that it's coming to the point where there almost is no way out. Like, we don't like secession in this country, right? Secessionism is, is treason in the Civil War. In, in this case, if you have the federal government violating fundamental rights of freedom of religion and freedom of speech and free economic rights and taking away your guns and all of this, and Texas says, listen, we're out. You know what? We're going to pay our, our share of the federal tax rates. But other than that, you're going to have to leave us alone. We're not helping enforce any of the laws. We're starting to see this happen already. I think it exacerbates. The problem is going to come when people say, okay, so I'm paying 40% of my money to the federal government and I'm getting zero things in return. So why exactly are we doing this anymore? You know, that, that, and, and I, I wonder whether the 51% who run the federal government and want to obliterate all checks and balances, whether they allow a sort of soft separation to occur. 
I mean, the nice thing about the EU is that Brexit had the ability to Brexit. I, I, that doesn't exist under the United States Constitution. The last time a couple states tried to break away, it was pretty bloody uh, for everybody. And so. also for a terrible reason. So and yes. for a terrible reason, yeah. yeah right, that's right. So, you know, if it were to happen this time, we're kind of in uncharted territory. We, we're not having a national debate on slavery, for instance. We're, we just kind of don't like each other anymore. <laughs> right. No, that's right. I mean, there, there's, you could see a world in which and you already see it with sanctuary cities where California is just like, we're not enforcing federal law and we're not helping enforce federal law. Yeah. And you're seeing it, I assume you will in Texas if pro-gun legislation gets passed and Texas is like, guess what? We're not effectuating that. We're not going to be involved in that. Yeah. And you know, th there will come a point where the pedal does hit the metal and there's a direct conflict. I think it's likely to happen over freedom of religion and educating your children. Yeah. Like you could easily see a world in which the Democrats try to pass uh, a Bill C-16, like the bill in, in Canada, that basically makes it so that you are prosecutable or arrestable if you not go along with the prevailing view of absurd gender politics. Right. If that happens and people start, you know, y your kid says something to their teacher, that teacher reports it to, to Child Protective Services, and now you've got people at your door with guns saying, we're going to take your kid away unless you acknowledge that your boy is a girl. Yeah. Well, then, then you could start to see things get really ugly really quickly. I hope yep. it never comes to that. Yep, that's right. So we've got one fr uh, from Dan. Dear Ben... <laughs> This is great. Great. Real nice, Dan. D Dear Ben, it's not merely enough to dislike Michael Knowles. You need to be actively anti-Michael. By continuing to remain silent about his employment, you're engaging in a system of Michael Knowles. Thus, you are Michael. If you don't get it, I don't have time to explain it. From Dan. Wow. Well, Dan definitely deserves his, his signed book. He gets his that's, signed that, book. That is, that is excellent stuff right there. Wow, that's, that's a whole system in there. I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah, it's, it's Michael Fragility. That's Michael Fragility. <laughs> Uh, from Darren, do you think that the perceived division in the country, which is fueled by the media, is simply due to the election cycle, or is there a cultural divide that is arising? I feel like the, the vast majority of us are stuck somewhere in the middle between two extremist groups. Thanks for your show. Keeps me sane, Darren. So I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I think that what you've noticed is that and studies show this. The more informed you are, the worse you are. <laughs> what, what you actually see is the people on Twitter are the worst. And if right. you're on Twitter, you know this full-fledged. Yep. The, 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 the most nasty, most garbage, least unifying people are all the blue checks on Twitter, which is why when there was that bizarre hack of Twitter and all the blue checks disappeared, people were like, it it's heaven. paradise. It was heaven. It's heaven. Like, <laughs> this is fantastic. The, that is a real problem. And during election years, it obviously gets a lot worse. I think the vast majority of Americans are in the middle and just want to be left alone. Yep. Uh, Americans are by nature kind of moderate and mainly want to be left alone. Um, but very few people are representing those interests. So that is the hope. It used to be that I thought that the hope for the country was an informed population. Now I think that the hope for the country may be an uninformed population if the people who are actually informing them are lying to them. Right. So right. That's, that's what you think when the schools shut down and the colleges shut down. You say, great, people are never going to be better educated than when they're uneducated. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, they're saying we're going to shut down all the public schools. And I'm thinking to myself, so the 1619 Project won't get taught this yeah. year? Like, <laughs> so okay, homeschooling will come back? Well, silver we'll lining. schooling. You know. All right. You're right. <laughs> uh, if you are just joining us, by the way, we are taking your questions. I assume you knew that because that's what we're, you can see us doing that. But you can only get your question answered if you go and order a signed copy of Ben's brand new book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Head on over to dailywire.com slash Ben and you can order your copy there. Alexander from Fort Worth, Texas wants to know, what would it take for you to put your full support behind the Libertarian Party. Okay. Should I curse or should I not curse? <laughs> yeah, you you uh, can okay. go blue. It's okay. A blue, yeah. uh, you ready? You ready? They need to stop being a damned show. That is the answer. Okay. The Libertarian Party is a show. I'm sorry to break it to you, but when your Libertarian Party convention features a man dancing around in nude, a fat guy with an iron, like an iron cross or like the, or like the, well, I don't even know what that was. That's not good. That's not good. <laughs> it seems to me that last time around, you had the two most unpopular candidates in American history, and you ran Gary Johnson, mm. who then proceeded to earn a grand total of like 6% of the vote. How does your libertarian candidate not win 15% of the vote when Hillary Clinton is running against Donald Trump? So the answer is, you need to nominate somebody who's not obviously crazy. You need to stop running your party as a scam, because it seems like a scam, frankly. It seems like everybody who's donating money to the libertarian party is donating just enough so the libertarian party never gets audited, but not enough that the libertarian <laughs> party ever actually does anything in elections. Yeah. And then you need to have an actual platform that doesn't alienate the vast majority of Americans by focusing in on mandatory pornography and such. Like, just stop it. Just stop it. That, they should hire you as a consultant because that, those are simple fixes, you know, but it would, it would help the party quite a lot. Uh, Jana 
from Rensselaer, New York, wants to know, what are three words conservatives should live by? That's a very specific question. That is. That is. Onomatopoeia, <laughs> pandemonium, mm -hmm. and order. No, the, the, actual, the, the, actual, the actual answer is, uh, number one, gratitude, because you every, all of us stand on the shoulders of others. Yep. Uh, two would be humility which is connected to gratitude. You have to have humility with regard to both your own greatness in the history of the world. And three would be, I think, courage. You have to have moral courage to stand up for your rights in the face of an overwhelming, sometimes, fight to, to invade those. It's a great point. People forget courage is the prerequisite of all the virtues. You got to have that one if you're going to do any of the other ones. Uh, next question comes from Tim. Ben, a lot has been made in the media concerning the number of police officers signing up for retirement at record numbers. I'm sure the numbers are up, but a more telling statistic would be how many people are signing up to become police officers. I was recently told by a member of the Indianapolis Fire Department their current application process had over 2,100 people sign up, while the Indianapolis Metro Police Department had only 200. I would bet the application numbers are down across the country. Why would anyone want to take on what has become a completely thankless job? I don't know that there's much of a question in there. As much as a realistic Is statement. It, yeah, no, that's yes. right. I mean, I, we had a caller to our show uh, maybe a week and a half ago who called in. He was in the latest class of NYPD, and his, I think his father and his uncle, and I think maybe his grandfather had been NYPD members, a Hispanic guy, and who had apparently internalized his white privilege because he wanted to be a cop. Yeah. And, he, and he said that he was slated to be part of that NYPD class, and they just canceled the class. Wow. They just got rid of the entire entering class for the NYPD. I mean, I've, I'm talking to cops all over the country. They're all looking to retire. I'm talking to people all over the country who thought about being a cop and are thinking, why would I possibly do that? If they do want to be a cop, they're looking at moving to sort of small town America where people actually still like the cops and treat them decently. It's, it's a thankless job. You're about to see the crime rates. You're already seeing it. I, I predicted it the minute this started. You'd see the crime rates skyrocket. They have skyrocketed. They will continue to skyrocket because the dumbest thing you could possibly do is remove cops from high crime areas. It is the stupidest thing you could possibly, possibly do if you actually care about black lives. This is why when Terry Crews said to Don Lemon, when Don Lemon was like, black lives matter, and Terry Crews was like, all black lives matter. And Don, Don Lemon was like, what do you mean, Terry? He's like, well, if you remove all the cops, a lot of black people get shot. And Don Lemon's like, we're only talking about police brutality. <laughs> yeah. That's why Don Lemon's an idiot. Right, right. He said, it's in the name. It's like, right, that's the name. Right. Black lives, all black All lives black, matter, like right? all. That's yes. right. Yeah, it's really, really tough gig these days. And unfortunately, we're all going to suffer as the numbers go down. Uh, next question from Sandy. Ben, I have a few questions. I hope that wow. Sandy bought a few books. I, I hope so, too. It's like multiple. I have three kids to put through schools. <laughs> or maybe not these days. Yeah, the schools exactly. don't open. Right? To pay myself to homeschool them. <laughs> yeah. uh, what do you think about Lacey Johnson, who is running against Ilhan Omar? Should Republicans and conservatives send support to more moderate Democrats to help oust radicals like Ilhan? And if so, would you throw your weight behind an effort like that? Sure. Uh, anything to stop Ilhan Omar from being in Congress would be, a, would be a positive effort. Ilhan Omar is a terrible person, generally, and she is horrible for the country. Her perspective is bad for the country. Yep. Um, and so anything that helps get her out of Congress, I'm very much in favor. Listen, I know there are a lot of Republicans who are like, we love Ilhan Omar being in there and AOC, and it's great because they give us something to, to a foil. Listen, they give me something to talk about. Like, that's, that's true. But it turns out that I'd rather have fewer things to talk about and a less insane Congress filled with crazy people. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. If you can support ousting Omar from within, go for it. I think that's a good, I think that's a worthwhile cause. That's the thing is, it, you know, we're, we're playing a kind of a dangerous game by pushing up these people like Ilhan Omar. Say, we want to keep her there because eventually, you know. She might be the majority that's the problem. whip or something. Like this is, yeah. this is, and she's moving in that direction. I mean, yeah. AOC is moving in that direction. She will eventually be a high-ranking member of the House. And then she'll be woke scolded by the new woke. Right. right? When AOC is 50, <laughs> then she'll be treated like Nancy Pelosi is treated by AOC. Right. That's, I guess that's something to look forward to. Yeah, I think so. A question from Aaron. Another Aaron, man. From Fort Worth. Is it strange that all of these people are named Aaron? No, I, that's, that's <laughs> my question. That's not Aaron's. Is it strange that all of these riots and protests are the lack of control in these states and the lack of control in these states is making a conservative like myself want big government to step in. No, because, and, and this is a key point. When we say we are in favor of small government, we're in favor of government not invading our rights. But the precondition to rights actually being effectuated is law and order. The whole reason to have a government in the first place is to effectuate your life, liberty, and property. That cannot exist absent a system of civilization. That system of civilization has to be guaranteed by force because you can't have people invading your life, your liberty, and your property willy-nilly. That's not the goal of small government. The goal of small government it's not really about the size so much as it is about the function, right? Limited government is a different thing than small government. Small government is the idea that the government should be just small in size. 
limited government is the idea that government is limited yeah. to certain functions. And within those functions, government needs to do its job. So absolutely, you should want the government to step in and stop rioting. That's absolutely a thing that you should want to follow. This is an amazing meme that I've seen come up in recent days from the left, is they'll say, oh, you want the police to arrest criminals? I thought you were a small government conserv- roasted conservative. <laughs> yeah, it's people dropped on their head as children. <laughs> uh, from Sandy. No, not Sandy. She asked about Lil Hunt. From Matthew. Hi, Ben. With all the discussion of schools not opening in the fall, why are conservatives raising their voice to the government to open up schools over using this as an opportunity to take back academia? Wouldn't this be a good opportunity for conservatives to take back education? Thanks. Love the show. Keep up the good fight. Yes, this is, a, this is and it is happening. So I think that both, the answer is both and. So we're, we're all paying taxes for the schools to be open. It's kind of absurd that we pay taxes for the schools to be open, then the schools aren't open, and then we pay more taxes. Like, that, that's a ridiculous thing. But conservatives are using this as an opportunity to grow educational opportunities. I, I think the big problem right now is that there are certain, the, the system is not built to hold enough people yet. And even more incredibly, in places like California, they're trying to shut down the ability of private schools to open. Yeah. So, the, so Gavin Newsom has basically issued an order that if the public schools don't open, neither can the private schools, which is... Him basically saying that even if the private schools have the resources to open, which many of them do, right, they actually have PPE for teachers and yeah. they have methods of separating out the kids far enough and all of this, which, again, schools are not going to be the chief factors of transmission. That's just not what the data show. But the, the governor here basically said, well, we, what we don't want is the, is the private school students jumping way ahead of the public school students. So basically everyone can continue to be ignorant. That's, that's a great idea. I mean, there was an article in the Washington Post by a teacher today suggesting you know, maybe we just have to change our standards of when people can read. Because after, after all this delay, maybe we should just, you know, okay, so the new age when you read is nine. Like, well, that, that seems like not great for the kids. And I was under the impression the school was for the kids, not for the teachers, but apparently I'm wrong. You were very wrong about that. It's all about the oh, teacher yeah. unions. I mean, that's, it hasn't, hasn't been about the kids in a while. Uh, from Chris, dear Ben, gun rights question for you. I can see the way the Biden campaign is going. I'm not a gun owner yet. I like that yet but am working on educating myself on what my legal rights are to become a legal gun owner. Regarding the Second Amendment, if Joe Biden becomes president, what changes do you think would happen related to the Second Amendment? I'm unsure of his actual position, given that he just caved to the radical left on climate change, among other things, sincerely, Chris. Yeah, I mean, certainly you'd go for the federal assault weapons ban again, which is the most useless piece of legislation ever devised by man. It had zero impact on mass shooting so far as most studies show. Um, the, and, and on overall violence, it also had zero impact. The, he, I assume that he would go for some sort of limitation on magazine size. He's talked about this fairly openly. Uh, I assume that he would try for a national gun registry. He'd want to close the so-called gun show loophole, which is not a gun show loophole. It doesn't, there is no gun show loophole. If you buy from a federally licensed firearms dealer, you have to go through the federal process for buying a firearm. If you buy from a friend or family, it's a different thing. In order to monitor those sales, you'd have to have a national registry that is updated upon every single sale, which means the government knows who has guns, what kind of guns they have, and where all the guns are, which seems kind of dangerous. But Biden would push for that. Those would be the chief things that he tries to push for. And then if you really wanted to go for broke, and he'd wait for the first mass shooting so that he could use that mass shooting as an opportunity to get things done, because unfortunately, let no good crisis go to waste. Uh, It would be a tragedy, and he would use the tragedy. This is what, unfortunately, too many Democrats do. Then the move would be, okay, we want mandatory gun buybacks, and that would be the, the sort of final straw. People would challenge it in court. And then you are now reliant on Justice Roberts to stand up for the Second Amendment. So um, good luck to you there, Yeah, and, uh, and we'll see how that goes for you. I think that's probably why gun sales are spiking through the roof right now. People see down the line. Uh, from Stephen in Reno, Nevada, I'm an aspiring writer, but I struggle to find motivation. What keeps you going? Oh, dude, this is a really hard question. So in the last few weeks, because everything has been going on, I'd already finished my book. I was like, you know what? I'm going to write some fiction. I've started like five different fiction projects, and I can't get further than about five pages in. But when I wrote this book, I knocked this thing out in like seven weeks flat. So if you find something that you're passionate enough about, then the writing will come. But you actually have to be passionate about it. I realize that I'm just not Drew, right? Andrew Clavin can sit, and he can write fiction, and it's workmanlike for him, and he enjoys the process. I enjoy writing, but it turns out I just don't enjoy writing that. So you have to find the thing that you're hot on enough that you can actually last long enough to actually do the whole thing. Um, but then you have to treat it like a job, the way that Drew does or the way that I did with this book. You have to actually slot out time in the day. You're going to write for two hours. It doesn't matter if what you write ends up being crap. You have to make it a regular part of your day. You can't wait for the artistic inspiration to strike. Yeah, that's, it is funny how Drew does it. He will, like, like at any nine to five, he will go in, he will lock himself in a room, and whether some characters come out or not, you know, that's, uh, that, that is sort of the job. Less inspiration and more, uh, more technique, probably. Uh, from... 
Bobby, dear Ben, what is the difference between mob rule and democracy? So the only difference between mob rule and democracy are the checks and balances the founders thought about, right? So the, the founders were very clear they didn't like pure democracy. This is obvious from the Federalist Papers. They worry deeply that democracy and mob rule end up being the exact same thing. Listen, Aristotle essentially yeah. says that democracy ends up very often being mob rule, which might be no better than the, the tyranny of one. And monarchy might actually be better in, in Aristotle's view than democracy because mob rule is ruled by the passions, whereas at, at least occasionally you might have a tyrant who actually is sort of a philosopher king in all of this. But the, the founders were unhappy with this. This is why they like checks and balances. People who talk about pure democracy, we live in a democracy, why do we have the Electoral College and the Senate of the United States? Why do we have federalist systems of subsidiarity? Why do we do any of these things? The answer is because pure democracy is scary. I am frankly amazed at the left now coming down in favor of pure democracy when, when pure democracy was applied without checks and balances in the Jim Crow South. It was applied specifically to keep down a minority. The problem with a pure democracy it is this mob rule, mob majorities overruling minorities is extraordinarily dangerous. That's right. You see the left now today, they'll be chanting, this is what democracy looks like while they burn down buildings. I don't think it's a good advertisement for democracy. <laughs> uh, next question from Cara from New York. Dear Ben, statistically speaking, what percentage of Americans do you believe represent the silent majority, if you believe in the silent majority in favor of President Trump, or the term silent majority meaning a group of people who can't speak their minds in fear of being persecuted by the woke mob. So I think that there are people who are not silent, and that's like 30% of the population. And then I think that there are the woke liberals and their allies, and I think that's probably 35% of the population. And then I think there's all the rest. And I think that those are people who just want to get through the day. And if, that, if by that you mean silent majority, then I agree. And this is why it is almost a political sin that the president has not made it easier for them to vote for him. Yeah. Because they're there. I mean, they, they're, they're begging for somebody to champion the cause of leave us the hell alone. The problem is you have to be non-toxic in order to do that. You have to be non-offensive because right now what we're watching is people are going along to get along. They, they just want to live their lives. And if there's nobody who's standing up, and not only standing up, but standing up in a way that doesn't alienate them and make them feel dirty, uh, then they're, they're going to cave to the woke mob, and that's kind of what you're watching right now. You know, it's funny, because I think some of us, we always like the, you know, when President Trump's in the, the throes of battle, mm -hmm. we, we like the tweets. But I do, I talk to my grandmother, and she will often say, like, why has he got that scowl on his face? He's got to smile. He's got to be a nice guy, you know, and, and I think she probably represents it. It matters with a lot of women, particularly. Suburban women really do not like him. And again, I, I like the fight when the fight is proper. Trump is a great fighter, but, you know, wildly throwing punches is not quite the same thing as a Strategic jab and right cross. Yep. From Howdy. Oh, no. <laughs> That's what he's saying. From Howdy. <laughs> from howdy, howdy Duty. From Colin, also known as Howdy. Uh, I have noticed that many sports teams have started to cave to cancel culture. However, as far as I know, the NHL has not caved in regard to kneeling and changing the name and logo of the Chicago Blackhawks. Why do you think this is? Do you think it's because uh, of the majority of hockey fans being in Canada? From Colin. Um, <laughs> a lot of no, I mean, to that question. First of all, the, the majority of NHL fans are not in Canada. Um, but, it, but, I mean, there, there is an idea that the market really dictates what a lot of these teams are doing. Uh, so if you're the NBA and you have a, a disproportionately black constituency and you believe that your black constituency really likes the Black Lives Matter movement, which by polling data they do, then virtue signaling at, at those fans and making them Uber fans who yeah. Uber consume and then figuring that you might lose a few people, but most people are still going to stick around, it's actually not a bad marketing strategy. It's actually fairly smart. Right? You see the same thing with the NFL. The NFL is making a riskier bet because more of their fans are, are white than the NBA's fans probably by percentage. Uh, the NHL is an overwhelmingly white fan league. It doesn't have a lot of people of color who are fans of the NHL. And so for them, it would be kind of a foolish move to alienate people who by poll data tend to be less friendly to particular causes. So I think a lot of this is just pure market dynamics at work. You know what I think it is? It's hard to kneel in skates. That's, I think that's the real... People don't talk about the physics of this whole thing. That, that's a, that is a... An interesting point, too, on just how the market is working here. And, uh, so, you know, sometimes it doesn't give us the things that we want, but that's, that is well, the You see this with corporations kind of caving to the wokes, and you ask, why are they doing that? And the answer is because nobody else is, is fighting back on the other end. Yeah. Inevitably, what that means is that people will fight back on the other end, and things will get real ugly real quickly. Right, right. From Joseph in Helena, Montana. What is that photo hanging on the wall behind Michael? Uh, Where do I get one? Yes. The, oh, that's pretty Yes. Cool. Okay, so I have two of these. So the artist's name is Hoiser. Okay, I saw this first when Mike Lee did a, did a speech on the floor of the United States Senate, and he described this exact photo, but he didn't actually, he forgot to credit the guy. So I looked it up online, and I contacted the artist, and he sent me a print 
of this of Ronald Reagan riding a Velociraptor <laughs> carrying the American flag. Reagan is carrying a, a rocket launcher on his back while firing what appears to be a submachine gun. Wow. Uh, I have another one. If the camera actually were able to move, you'll be able to see it. It is, it is George Washington holding an eagle. Behind him is, is the American flag, and he is holding a minigun in his other hand with the chain across his, his shoulders, standing atop what appear to be the bodies of Terminators and or zombies. Wow. Um, because America, America. My, my decorations in this office are pretty spectacular. I have a bunch of uh, flags that I've gotten from various battalions. I have one from the, the state of Texas. I have, I have a lot of good stuff in this office. There are. And those, but check out Heuser's work. It's, it's really, it's hilarious and, and good, and you'll enjoy it. Those photographs are really amazing. Well, the, tat- uh, yeah, the tatted Reagan up Lincoln and, is also yeah. pretty good, right? Yeah, that's, also, that's also Heuser, I believe. Another, another great photo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from Laura. Ben, you have spoken many times about the positive nature of gridlock in the government and also recently mentioned the possibility of having Biden as president and Democratic majority in the Senate and House. Got me thinking about how the presidency and VP used to be determined by first and then runner-up votes rather than running with a running mate. Can you explain why this changed in the early 19th century and if it would be good to reinstate for the sake of that gridlock? Thank you for your insight, Laura. So I'm trying to remember when they exactly changed this. So it was obviously a hotly fraught thing because you ended up in one election with Thomas Jefferson as president of the United States and what, Aaron Burr is the vice president. Uh, and they really didn't like each other. And you ended up with John Adams as president and, uh, and Jefferson ended up being the vice president, correct? Yep. Um, so, the, so everybody was like, this sucks. Yeah. If I die, my worst enemy is taking over. And so they amended the constitution. They changed it so that the VP was not elected from the same party. But the, uh, from the uh, from the opposition, yeah. it's a good move. I mean, you, you don't actually want uh, you, you want a recipe for assassination. Imagine yeah. that Donald Trump was president right now and Hillary Clinton was his vice president. Just imagine. First of all, it would be hilarious, right? It would be so much more fun. Yeah. But, but <laughs> the, the chances of Donald Trump being Epstein would be extraordinarily high. That's the thing. If you if you really believe the rumors, you know, or really anybody, right? If you you've, if if you are one heartbeat away from the presidency and the person who's president is your mortal enemy. Then he will be your. Mortal. Although I will say, I think that this this same dynamic applies if Joe Biden picks Elizabeth Warren, right? Like if they're walking around Biden's Dasha and they're just walking down some steps, and suddenly the cane is gone, then I think you know where to look. Then, yep, that's uh, not too far. From Reggie in Kansas City, in your opinion, Ben, who are the greatest American artists, including musicians and writers and painters and everybody? Um, okay, greatest American artists. So, greatest American writer, uh, Twain. Uh, Hawthorne Melville would probably be the top three, uh, not necessarily in that order. Yeah. Um, greatest American uh, painters, I, I will admit I'm not as familiar with painting as, as I should be, so I will, I will kick that one to, to Knowles. Maybe Knowles has some ideas on that one. Yeah, I've got, I, I consider myself to be Thomas a great Kincaid. American painter. Yeah, Tom, you, know, you know, Thomas Kincaid always said he was the most controversial artist in the world. Every one of those little chimneys having smoke coming out of it, really beautiful stuff. Yeah, um, Bob Ross. Uh, the... Yeah. the <laughs> That's played by Steven Crowder. Um, but the uh, uh, greatest American musicians, so there's two categories, right? There's composers and there's musicians. Uh, greatest American composers, Gershwin, Copeland. Um, as songwriters, you'd have to say Irving Berlin would have to be up there. Um, Rodgers and Hammerstein, although Hammerstein did the lyrics, so Richard Rodgers would have to be up there. Uh, Stephen Sondheim would, would probably be up uh, Leonard Bernstein w- would be up there. Um, and then, you know, People who like rock can give you an answer on the rock bands. That, that ain't my purview. Yeah, that's, I guess you throw Elvis in there maybe for the rock guys or something. You know? Yeah, although, again, he, he didn't really write a lot of his own stuff. He, he really sang other people's stuff. So if, if you're going to do you know, great songwriters, I'm trying to think who'd be the great songwriters, great American artists, great kind of, you know, there, there's a bunch in, in sort of different fields. Like Fred Astaire obviously comes to mind. Right. He's a great American artist, and he doesn't really fall neatly into any of the categories that he just said. Right. Um, but... Louis Armstrong, great American musician. A yeah. uh, lot in jazz, a lot in jazz. Art Tatum, great American musician. Uh, Oscar, Oscar Peterson, great American musician. A lot, lot of great jazz artists and, and jazz creators. There's a lot. We could be here all day talking about the great Indeed. American artists. Uh, Tara in Atlanta, Georgia wants to know, why is it that the Speaker of the House is so high in the line of presidential succession? It doesn't make sense to me that a legislator should succeed uh, if the executive branch goes the way of the dodo. So I'm try- I just looked this up the other day, and I'm trying to remember when... There- so there are several. There have been several different succession acts. Uh, the latest one, I believe, was in the 40s. 
Um, and the goal was that you didn't want the president essentially picking every single person who would be in the line of succession. Mm. You didn't want him picking people based on who he thought would make a good president. You wanted him picking them based on whether they gave a good opinion or not in the field that they were in. And so you made it so that the, the Speaker of the House was third in the line of succession. But it was controversial at the time. It remains kind of controversial now, obviously. If something bad were to happen, God forbid, to Trump and Pence, Nancy Pelosi's president of the United States. And Good luck with that, gang. Yeah, it's not great. I'm, I'm all for pushing the postmaster general up a few notches. He, that guy gets no respect. I think him. it should just be like, we should have like a set address. Yeah. Like it's just a set address in Idaho or something. And whoever's <laughs> just living there becomes yeah. that person. That sounds great. It'd probably work out better than a lot of our elected officials anyway. Absolutely. From Mason in Texas, I feel like Make America Great Again was in some ways a slogan that could be seen as offensive and off-putting for millions of Americans that have not had it great at times in our country. If you were running for president, what would your slogan be? Hmm. So there, I've, I've thought about this. I actually have. Uh, so one would be no bullshit, right? That would be that would be one slogan because all of politics is bullshit, pithy. right? It's 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 pithy, and I think it gets to the heart of things. Uh, and the other one would be solve your own damn problems, mm. which which mm. I kind of like because first of all, all cursing yeah. is good, but beyond that, solve your own damn problems kind of sums up my philosophy because the truth is that I feel like that's kind of an inspiring message, meaning that most of the problems in your life are problems you are capable of solving. You don't need me to solve your problems. And if you need me to solve your problems, you've effed up your life worse than I probably have the capacity to fix. Right. So solve your own damn problems basically says you live in a free country. And you know what? Like together, we'll clear the way so that you can solve your own problems. Like that's my pledge is to make sure that you have the opportunity to solve your own problems and that nobody stands in your way through any sort of legal violation. But in the end, the greatness of the country is that you're supposed to be able to solve all your own damn problems. That's harsh. But it's empowering. That is uh, some classic. It's like Jordan Peterson over here. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. I'm Clean your room. Yeah. <laughs> Mobsters. Uh, from Pace. Good day, Ben. I am a 21-year-old living in Oklahoma. Due to the recent SCOTUS ruling, half of the state, if I read, if I read correctly, will eliminate the ability of U.S. officials to properly exercise their criminal justice activities, including chasing criminals or investigating crimes in what is now half of Oklahoma. Including I'm, Tulsa, yep. Including Tulsa, including the, the big big place in Oklahoma. I'm wondering how concerned I should be for my safety in the state now after this decision. So apparently the, the native tribes are going to cut some sort of deal with the, with the state government and, and they will make it so that the state can continue to police. Because the last thing that I think a lot of those Native American tribes want is control over Tulsa for policing. Yeah. And I think that they really don't want that. So probably it'll end up being like, okay, we'll allow you to police and you kick us some money. Right. We'll probably be what that deal looks like. Right. Um, but so I wouldn't worry too much about it. I don't think you're going to find yourself under tribal sovereignty in Tulsa in the end here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a bad ruling. It's just a bad ruling. And, and Justice Gorsuch has some weird ideas, man. Yeah, that guy, it, it is amazing. I, I felt after all the decisions, you know, there was the transgender one and the DACA one. People didn't pay enough attention to uh, Gorsuch giving away half of Oklahoma. That yeah. one kind of... just like, and, and by the way, it's, it's a bad decision because no one for basically 100 years argued that this was not part of Oklahoma, yeah. right? So there was a conflict between the original kind of treaty and then practice for 100 years. But the notion that you can sort of go back and reinterpret the treaty that had been accepted for 100 years and then be like, yeah, Tulsa now belongs to this tribe because of a treaty that happened 100 years ago. It's a pretty major upheaval, it seems like. Yeah, and can you imagine all Although, the court uh, cases? Although, listen, I actually, I have some, you know, in, in, in essence, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the position, but I kind of, I kind of, I hear that one better than the, than the stupid civil rights act. Right. Yeah. That, that were, one, that one's impossible. That one's just bizarre. Right. Yeah. It was, it was been a tough few weeks on the court. Uh, Elon from New York says, wants to know if you were to have a Thanos, Thanos, what Thanos, 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 you, you can tell it's a Marvel real, universe. I'm a real hip guy. As you, as you guys know, if you were to have a Thanos style retirement away from politics, writing and all public appearances. What modest occupation and or hobby would you pursue? The murder of half of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, literally Thanos' thing. Literally what Thanos does. No, but the, the being killed on my farm by the in the first five minutes of the sequel. Uh, but <laughs> spoiler alert. But uh, the well, I don't think you can do a spoiler alert after you do uh, anyway. retroactive spoiler alert. So the uh, I, mean, I get to do a lot of the stuff I love right now. I mean, I love writing. I love reading. Uh, I'd probably pick up a couple. Uh, I'd pick up a cellist and a pianist and maybe play some string, uh, some string trios uh, or piano trios. Um, I, I would take up cooking. I would take up painting. I'd be like Winston Churchill. I would just sit around and get fat and paint. <laughs> and that'd be, that'd be pretty exciting stuff. I, I would travel, except nobody can ever travel again. Right. So that's, which, which is sad. Like I was planning on traveling with my wife in, in our old age. And now it'll basically be, let's just rotate among the rooms in our house. Because COVID's never going away. 
But, you know, getting fat and painting, that's pretty, that's not a bad life. That's a pretty good life. Pretty good life. Joseph from Staten Island wants to know, I understand why the left is so intent on keeping lockdowns in effect and businesses closed. However, I'm unsure about what is to be gained by keeping schools closed. Any insight would be helpful. Uh, This is a New York City nurse over here. Huge fan. Thank you for your voice and explanation. So first of all, thanks for what you do, because being a nurse is a really rough job, especially this time of year. So, um, you know, as far as the schools, I mean, the answer is they want to please the teachers unions. That's really the only answer, Hmm. Uh, because the the schools being open, there are a lot of reasons why, as a leftist, you want the schools open. You want to make sure that there is not some grave inequality that exists between private schools and public schools. You want to make sure that parents can actually drop their kids off at school and then go to work. You want to make sure that social services can make sure that no abuse is going on. Like, there are a lot of reasons why, even if you're on the left, you want the schools open. It really has to do a lot more with pleasing the teachers' unions than anything having to do with the children. Yep. Ephraim from Florida. When approaching a new topic or issue, how do you sift through the multitude of sources which are available on the internet? Which sources do you prioritize? I'm asking because many times... I'm at a loss as to how I can inform myself on issues which I have had no previous exposure to. So what I'll tend to do is try and find two people who are in conflict. And that's usually not too hard. Usually, if there's, this happens a lot in foreign policy. So in American policy, there are not a lot of issues that sort of come up that I haven't thought about because, you know, honestly, I've been, in, I've been doing this for literally half my life at this point, more than half my life. I'm now 36 years old, and I started doing this when I was 17. Right. So it's been a long time. But when it comes to foreign policy, every so often I'll be like, what's happening in Saskatchewan? And I have no clue what's happening in Saskatchewan. And so what I'll try and do is I'll try to find like somebody who really hates somebody and then I'll read both of them. It'll be like, okay, you know, what's policy on Ukraine? Here's a person who's really pro-Russia. Here's a person who's really pro-Ukraine. I read both of them and I see which one I find more convincing. And then I'll take a look at their reading list. I'll see if maybe there's a writer on their reading list who in the past I've agreed with because maybe that's indicative of underlying values. I'll read that. Then I'll read the opposite. So I try to get both sides, but it's usually not hard to find two people who really don't like each other writing on a particular topic because they'll, they'll name check each other and then you can at least get a well-rounded view before you make a call. This is great advice. It's so much, it will stand you in so much better stead than just trying to find some guy exactly in the middle because that, yeah. obviously that guy doesn't exist, you know? Uh, yeah, it's a very good advice. Look at the opposite, opposite points of view. Chad from LA says, how do I respond to my friend who claims that the phrase law and order is racist? You stop talking to them because that's stupid. I mean, seriously, like, there is no comeback to law and order is racist. Yeah. If law and order is racist, then what is anarchy? Non-racist? Yeah. Like, but that, Marxism that, that, is not racist. What, what absolute utter stupidity. Yeah. Like, the, the idea that a phrase has been used by racists in the past, but also by non-racists in the past, does not make the phrase inherently racist. Because it turns out most phrases in, in human language have been used by bad people at some point or other. The idea that you are in favor of law and order while people are looting the local CVS doesn't make you a racist. It makes you a rational human being. Right. When, when you think of the like discussions in our whole civilization of law and order for all of history, uh, racism is not the first thing that, that comes into your mind. Pretty crazy stuff. From TJ. Hey, Ben. What is the best thing that average people can do to effectively stop people from destroying cities uh, who, who are, you know, or, or just who are being generally unreasonable? If it's to ignore them, how will that help stop the destruction of property or violence? Well, I mean, the best way is not to ignore them. The best way is to elect people who empower the cops. And then the second best way is to empower the federal government to step in. I mean, the, ignoring, ignoring people who are committing actual crimes is not a good way to stop crime. It turns out that ignoring your kids when they're being little jerks is kind of an effective way because they're looking for attention. But some of these people are not looking for attention. They're looking to steal things. Yeah. So, <laughs> so ignoring them stealing things just incentivizes them to steal things. You know, in the end, if people refuse to defend your property, you end up having to defend your property yourself. Just hope that you live in a jurisdiction where they don't prosecute you for it. Yeah, apparently. Not Missouri. Apparently. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, you got you to gotta pick carefully these days because uh, things, are, things are in motion. Keith from Mississippi wants to know, who are some figures on the left that you truly admire? I think this could be the topic of our next blank book. Hmm. The figures on hmm. the left that one truly admires. Uh, so I will say that there are some liberals who I think are, are at least interesting. Uh, some of them appear on... Uh, on that Harper's Weekly list. So hmm. John McHorter is, is of the left, I think. He's a liberal, and he writes on racial issues. I find his writing really interesting. Um, I think that, that um, Yasha Monk is probably a little bit liberal-leaning. I find his stuff pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, Barry Weiss is on the, in the center. She really is not a right-winger. They castigate her as a right-winger because that makes their narrative easy, but, but she's not on the right, really. Uh, and she's interesting. 
Uh, Jonathan Haidt is probably probably identifies as a Democrat, and Jonathan Haidt is is fascinating. There's some old school kind of liberals who just disagree with me about taxation, but like data analysis. Jesse Single is one of them, right? Jesse Single used to write for New York Magazine, but actually cares about data, so he's kind of fascinating. There, there there's some that are out there that I and and I admire if they're willing to stand up to the left. I would admire it more if they would publicly actually have conversations with me instead of doing the the what I call the happy birthday text thing, right? They'll text <laughs> you happy birthday when it's your birthday, but then publicly they'll be like. No happy birthday. Why? Because that would acknowledge that I'm a human. Yeah. Like that, that, that I don't appreciate so much. Yeah. There's, it's amazing. Sometimes I get so many of those, dude. I can't even tell you. Yeah. I have so many folks on the left and in Hollywood and in real positions of power who are like, happy birthday, man. I'm like, don't say it publicly. Yeah. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. <laughs> it's really nice when, when people like, like you enough to be nice to you off camera. You know, but they and then as soon as you're getting shellacked, they're nowhere to be found. Yeah. It's, it's right. really wonderful. Yep. That's really great. Last question. Can you imagine the last, very last question from Talia in Maine? What do you hope that this book will accomplish? So I'm really hoping that this leads off the re-education of the American population about our foundations. I think that we have been absolutely neglectful in discussing the complexities of American history, but maintaining that America was founded in 1776, not 1619. I think that we've been neglectful in inculcating certain cultural values, not just you know a, a, a belief in social institutions, but that attitude of adventure, I think we've been remiss in doing that. I think we've cultivated instead generations of people who believe they are owed things. And I think that when it comes to American philosophy, we haven't really explained why the Declaration is good. We just assume that it was in the air and that just by breathing the American air, all this would sort of adhere to us. That's, that's not the way that this works. And so what I'm really hoping is that people read this and they come away with a renewed understanding of exactly what people who wish to destroy the country are doing and also why the country is worth defending in the first place. Go get the book. Unfortunately, we are out of time. But if you got here late or you weren't able to catch us live, you can still get an autographed copy of How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. You go to dailywire.com slash Ben. That is dailywire.com slash Ben. Thank you always to everybody for joining us. Thank you to everyone who ordered their signed copy. And if you didn't, what are you waiting for? Go do it right now. That is all for me. I have got to go now. Go write my show, The Michael Knowles Show, also here on The Daily Wire. And you can catch it wherever you get your podcasts. And Ben will be here for like 10 more hours to sign all of the books and keep up the book tour. Good luck to you, Ben. Everybody else, we'll see you later. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.